I'm Rob Little and you're listening to Global Disruptors, uncovering the world's most successful entrepreneurs. This is Disrupt Radio Australia. There are always hurdles. Anyone can shoot down an idea. It's very easy to see stumbling blocks, but the difficulty is making something happen. In some ways, she was quite lucky because it was really seen as a, a rebuttal of the Jermaine Greer book, which had been a bestseller. I don't think she liked me and I didn't particularly like her. Ariana Huffington. She's the best-selling author of 15 books, many of which she wrote without plagiarizing other people's work. You just have to start somewhere to get something going. And she seems very much a woman of action. It's always looking to have the best platform and the biggest place in the room. She ran for governor of California against Arnie Schwarzenegger and lost. Boy, did she lose. Managed to poll just 1% of the vote. She was certainly not a liberal icon when she was at Cambridge. She sits on the board of a whole bunch of companies, including the investment giant Onyx. But she is best known for having given her name to the uniquely irritating, yet groundbreaking, liberal digital newspaper, The Huffington Post, or Huff Post, and is now the figurehead of something called Thrive Global, which declares, quotes, we're on a mission to end the burnout epidemic. The hyperactive Ariana says she realised she had to help the world with burnout when she fell victim to it herself. I woke up in the morning, went to my desk and collapsed from exhaustion. Hit my head on the way down, uh, broke my cheekbone, got four stitches on my right eye. And I found myself going from doctor to doctor, from MRI to echocardiogram to find out what the what was wrong with me. They thought I could have a brain tumor, they didn't know. And you know, doctors' waiting rooms are great places to ask life's big questions. Have you noticed that? <laughs> like, I was asking myself, you know, what is a good life? You know, Following her collapse, rather than find a sun lounger and lie back to contemplate her millions, she wrote a book called Thrive. I think Ariana's book is really very valuable because as a CEO, I think when she wrote that book, she was still at HuffPost. She'd founded it uh, in the early 2000s. And her own experience of exhaustion when she sort of collapsed in 2007 was a very signal time for her. She realized that actually there was nothing physically wrong with her. She was just exhausted. And she started committing herself to seeing how she could improve her own well-being and discovered mindfulness as part of that, but also how she could um, extend that well-being to her employees within HuffPost. The Thrive book came out of that and tried to pull together what she knew about her own experience as a CEO and her own experience of mindfulness and drawing on the evidence base, which I think is the distinctive thing that she's really concerned with what's the evidence that these things actually work and how do they work? Because I think if busy CEOs and busy business people and busy entrepreneurs don't understand how it works, they're not that interested. It's just, oh yeah, just another thing. That's Mark Williams, Emeritus Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Oxford. Mark is a leading figure in the field of mindfulness, which is at the heart of Huffington's approach. More of that later. 
Strangely for a business venture, the Huffington Post was not founded to generate big profits. Its goal was political. After Democrat John Kerry lost narrowly to George W. Bush in the 2004 presidential election, Arianna Huffington, venture capitalist Ken Lehrer and the digital media expert Jonah Peretti decided to create a liberal version of the influential conservative online news machine, The Drudge Report. She already had her own website, Arianna Online, but she wanted to transform it into what she called elevated blogging. Soon, she had a collection of highbrow and high-profile contributors from Hollywood to academia that included Diane Keaton, Warren Beatty, Norman Mailer, David Mamet, Larry David and Walter Cronkite. Ever since I can remember, I've loved starting conversations. Just conversations about everything. And the longing for conversations propelled me to want to start the Huffington Post, where people with something interesting to say can have a platform in which to say it. People from anywhere, well-known people, people nobody had heard of, and use the power of online media, us, the power of the Internet, which we're just beginning to understand. The words of Arianna Huffington, spoken by Laurel Lefko. She got into writing online on the Internet at the very early days of the Internet. Leah McGrath-Goodman is the author of Arianna Huffington, Media Visionary and Wellness Evangelist. During Clinton's sex scandals, Bill Clinton's sex scandals, she started a website called resignation.com, which was to more or less shame Bill Clinton into resigning, which was unsuccessful. Uh, but she started writing online more. And she continued to write online while she ran for office in California um, in 2003. She started Ariana Online and she continued to publish her own articles. She had raised money during her run for governor in California. So she, she used some of that money and she loved the interaction with her readers. You know, she would put out an article and they would write to her and she would write back. She loved the verbal jousting and she started to build up a platform and she started bringing in her friends, some of her celebrity friends. And it was the, the early, um, early idea for the Huffington Post was using a lot of her contacts to, to try to brainstorm something. She had a really beautiful mansion in Brentwood, California. You know, this was a very liberal leaning part of the state and she ended up you know, increasingly having these liberal friends, um, increasingly met Hollywood types and other famous folks on the West Coast. And yeah, she would hold, it was really in a way bringing some of these amazing parties online where everyone could be talking um, by posting. The Huffington Post was launched in May 2005. It was a hell of a different project to her first online platform called simplyresignation.com and which called for President Bill Clinton to leave office. That had become a rallying point for American conservatives. She had met amazing um, Republican operatives and media types and PRs while her husband was running for Congress. Um, they had even hired some of, um, some of the advisors for Reagan during his time as president uh her husband ended up paying for you know really kind of like the best of the best and so a lot of people who were involved in conservative uh news and conservative culture were people she still was friendly with and so as she launched her own media operation she started bringing in the people who she knew were really good at it um her priority wasn't 
I want the most liberal people. Her priority was, I want the most successful platform I can put together. And so she was going to bring along anyone who was good at that. Although strongly left-leaning, in its early days, the Huffington Post did employ Andrew Breitbart, who later started the right-wing Breitbart News. You know, he stayed for a short time. You know, he was, as we know, Breitbart, Andrew Breitbart, um, later founded the far-right uh, news site called Breitbart.com, which he called the Huffington Post of the right. So he obviously came to the idea of, well, this is going to be a liberal thing, and so I'm going to launch my own version of it, which which is what he did. He He has now passed away. He died in 2012. As her post became a huge success, Huffington, who had little experience in technology or even journalism, saw her own brand grow too. She was now a superstar travelling the globe, launching local Huffington Post offices. The trouble was, by 2010, it was making about $31 million in revenue, but its profits were less than a million. Its other issue was that, although it was reaching remarkable 26 million visitors per month, growth had stalled. And in the internet business, if your site isn't growing, it's going to shrink. And to grow, the Huffington Post needed more investment. But who's going to invest in a company that can't seem to turn a profit, despite big revenues? Ariana had to use her charm and contacts book to go out there, talk the talk, and find that money tree. And she did. In 2011, she found Tim Armstrong, a founder of Google's advertising arm, who had by then become CEO of AOL. Yeah, it's so funny to think of AOL now because it's also kind of very dated now. But when she sold it, it was for $300 million in cash and stock. Um, and she had a 14% stake in Huffington Post at that time. So she did really well. A lot of her investors did phenomenally well. And Ariana personally bagged about $21 million. Not bad, given that she had put none of her own money in at the start. Here's biographer Leah McGrath Goodman again. But she stayed on, on after selling Huffington Post to AOL. They wanted her to lead it. And they also wanted her to lead all their other media properties. Um, that went very successfully and it globalized the Huffington Post. Uh, it was an operation that was very high cost. I think that AOL would have liked for it to have been a less expensive operation, but uh, they achieved their goals and they outstripped the traffic of the New York Times. Uh, they really, they probably had more articles published a day and more daily unique viewers than almost any websites ever had. You know, they got to a point where they were publishing 2,000 articles a day, hundreds of millions of viewers. That's very hard to do by today's standards with all the websites now and all the news websites. You're listening to Global Disruptors on Disrupt Radio Australia. Ariana Huffington was born in Athens in 1950. Huffington is her married name and more about her ex-husband Michael later. She was christened Ariadne Anastasinopoulos. Her father, Konstantinos, was a journalist and management consultant. Her mother, Ellie, did great things with the Greek resistance during the Second World War. In her book, On Becoming Fearless in Love, Work and Life, published in 2004, she wrote that when ambushed in the mountains by a group of German soldiers, her mother faced them down. They started to shoot. 
threatening to kill everyone if the group didn't surrender the Jews that the Germans suspected rightly they were hiding. My mother, who spoke fluent German, stood up and told them categorically to put down their guns, that there were no Jews in their midst. And then she watched the German soldiers lower their guns and walk away. The words of Arianna Huffington, spoken by Laurel Lefko. Her father's dreams of becoming a newspaper proprietor finished in bankruptcy, a life lesson she often referred to in her Huffington Post days. She has also been very open about her father's infidelities. After her parents divorced when she was 11, Arianna claims her mother struggled financially. But she went to a private school, had foreign holidays, and later told the Washington Post that, quote, I never lacked anything. Like her father, she also dreamed big. Despite the fact that she didn't speak English and had never been to England, when she saw a picture of Cambridge University in a magazine, she told her mum that's where she wanted to study. She was already a larger-than-life figure. She took the university by storm. Lord Chris Smith, a former Labour Party cabinet minister, was a contemporary of hers. She had this sense of, of glamour about her. There was obviously no shortage of money. Uh, there were lots of rumours going around about uh, how she uh, used to uh, drive a car, which was very unusual for students in those days, and park it on yellow lines and simply accumulate the parking fees, uh, which from time to time she would pay off. Those were the sort of stories that uh, arose at the time about Ariana. Uh, she was uh, undoubtedly a figure of considerable prominence in the university. Chris Smith might remember her as glamorous, but Ariana was not accepted straight away, and some laughed at her accent and her still shaky English. Others called her Stariana Comacropolis. She traded on the uh, glamorous figure rather than on the uh, assiduous political background. Huffington became president of the Cambridge Union, a debating society founded in 1815 that had never had a foreigner at its helm before and had only had two women presidents before her. I followed her as president about a year later and I was president in the uh, Michaelmas term of 1972. So uh, I came uh, fairly hard on her heels. And one of the reasons I think why I got elected was that I was totally different from Ariana. There was no glamour, but there was serious uh, politics in what I was uh, trying to present. And I think people had tired somewhat of the glamour by then. While she was there, she became the subject of a BBC TV documentary, which followed her at the all-woman college Girton, as well as at the Union. When I first came up two years ago, the first thing that struck me is the long, endless corridors. Then they are really depressing. It seemed as though you would go on walking forever. Now that I have only two full terms to go before I leave Girton, I find them full of character. Another thing that my Greek upbringing had not prepared me for were the college regulations. For instance, did you know that you can't have more than four men in your room without asking for your tutor's permission? That was One Woman's Week, BBC Television, 1971. Cambridge and the Union were springboards for Ariana Stasinopoulos. Girton played a pioneering role in the development of education for women because it provided a safe space 
for at that time perhaps society was a bit more conservative so for families to send their girls their young women to go and get an education that was on the edges of Cambridge but not right there in the heart of the action and it was this kind of enterprise that sparked copycat enterprises Girton wasn't just about Cambridge and it wasn't just about women in you know, the southeast of England it actually started a trend and gave great respectability to the whole women's movement not just in education but in political and social life more generally the current mistress of Girton College Elizabeth Kendall in the early 1970s Ariana was seen as very much of the right politically and her Cambridge boyfriends were as well. They included David Mellor, who went on to become a British cabinet minister under Conservative Prime Minister John Major, as political writer Julia Langdon remembers. I became friends with David Mellor, who was a cabinet minister in the Thatcher era, and he told me that he had um, been boyfriend-girlfriend with Ariana when they were at Cambridge together. Indeed, um, he actually let on that he used to write her speeches. I don't know whether he would he would own up to that today, but he said he wrote her speeches for her when she was uh, president. Um, and he, he knew her well and spoke um, warmly of his memories of her. <laughs> How do I say this? <laughs> Veteran political reporter Julia Langdon also recalls a meeting with Ariana over dinner with another boyfriend who would go on to great things in the British Conservative Party. Somewhat to my horror, Ariana Stasinopoulos appeared at the dinner table. Peter Sobingama had invited his brother, John, later well known as a government minister, to, to dinner with us and he brought his girlfriend Ariana Stasinopoulos who of course I had heard of because she had been a fiery Greek president of the Cambridge Union and quite well known as such but she also had a reputation as being something something rather right wing and I was not at all right wing then or now it was also the peak of first wave women's lib and as it was called then and she was distinctly antipathetic to what was going on and the one night I dine out on the story of Ariana Stasinopoulos saying to me once leaning over the table in this restaurant and saying oh Julia why do you think I'm so right wing after three years at a college known for championing female equality it must have come as a disappointment for many when Ariana leapt into print with a book criticizing Germaine Greer's revered feminist blockbuster the female eunuch Men and women differ in every cell of their bodies. The female woman was subtitled in some editions with, quotes, an argument against feminism. The truth is that there is no contradiction between femaleness and independence, between femaleness and self-realization, between femaleness and intelligence. Today's female woman integrates and fuses these qualities without strain, without inner conflict. The Female Woman by Arianna Huffington was published in 1973. In some ways, she was quite lucky because it was really seen as a, a rebuttal of the Germaine Greer book, which had been a bestseller, and it was a hot issue at the time. And uh, Arianna, again, coming from a conservative background, really wanted to argue 
a sort of a different version of feminism. Some of her arguments are now quite dated and also can look quite sexist, but she has maintained that her underlying thesis was that you can be successful in your career and be a successful mother and partner, um, and you can have it all and you should not have to choose one over the other. The book did very well, and it also brought her a lot of new allies, again, conservative allies. One of them that I think people might recognize now, since a lot of this is dated at this point, um, Norman Mailer had written a book that was also a very conservative take on the women's liberation movement and very critical. And he he'd gotten really hammered for it. And so they became unlikely allies um, later on. He was one of the key writers who, when she launched the Huffington Post, agreed to blog on the Huffington Post that kind of helped get her on the map. It was disappointing, to say the least, to meet a woman who was out of step with the culture of the times for women. She was never a big feminist figure of any kind. Uh, she didn't uh, beat the, uh, the drum for the place of women in society. She was uh, much more interested, I think, in uh, getting on herself and making a name and uh, subsequent career for herself. I think it's always important to remember that women have the absolute full rainbow of views in exactly the same way that any other uh, group. It doesn't surprise me that there are lots of different kinds of views of what women's liberation means or what it means to be an independent and professional woman and you can just understand it from so many different perspectives. You might have the, the Huffington angle or the Jermaine Greer angle. I, I don't think it really matters as long as there's a very healthy debate. I'm Rob Biddle and you're listening to Global Disruptors on Disrupt Radio Australia. Stay tuned as we uncover more about the life and career of Arianna Huffington. listening to Global Disruptors, uncovering the world's most successful entrepreneurs. This is Disrupt Radio Australia. There are always hurdles. Anyone can shoot down an idea. It's very easy to see stumbling blocks, but the difficulty is making something happen. In some ways, she was quite lucky because it was really seen as a, a rebuttal of the Jermaine Greer book, which had been a bestseller. I don't think she liked me and I didn't particularly like her. Arianna Huffington. She's the best-selling author of 15 books, many of which she wrote without plagiarising other people's work. You just have to start somewhere to get something going, and she seems very much a woman of action. It's always looking to have the best platform and the biggest place in the room. She ran for governor of California against Arnie Schwarzenegger and lost. Boy, did she lose. Managed to poll just 1% of the vote. She was certainly not a liberal icon when she was at Cambridge. She sits on the board of a whole bunch of companies, including the investment giant Onyx. 
but she is best known for having given her name to the uniquely irritating yet groundbreaking liberal digital newspaper, The Huffington Post, or Huff Post, and is now the figurehead of something called Thrive Global, which declares, quotes, we're on a mission to end the burnout epidemic. The hyperactive Ariana says she realised she had to help the world with burnout when she fell victim to it herself. I woke up in the morning, went to my desk and collapsed from exhaustion. Hit my head on the way down, uh, broke my cheekbone, got four stitches on my right eye. And I found myself going from doctor to doctor, from MRI to echocardiogram to find out what the what was wrong with me. They thought I could have a brain tumor, they didn't know. And you know, doctors' waiting rooms are great places to ask life's big questions. Have you noticed that? <laughs> like, I was asking myself, you know, what is a good life? You know, Following her collapse, rather than find a sun lounger and lie back to contemplate her millions, she wrote a book called Thrive. I think Ariana's book is really very valuable because as a CEO, I think when she wrote that book, she was still at HuffPost. She'd founded it uh, in the early 2000s. And her own experience of exhaustion when she sort of collapsed in 2007 was a very signal time for her. She realized that actually there was nothing physically wrong with her. She was just exhausted. And she started committing herself to seeing how she could improve her own well-being and discovered mindfulness as part of that, but also how she could um, extend that well-being to her employees within HuffPost. The Thrive book came out of that and tried to pull together what she knew about her own experience as a CEO and her own experience of mindfulness and drawing on the evidence base, which I think is the distinctive thing that she's really concerned with what's the evidence that these things actually work and how do they work? Because I think if busy CEOs and busy business people and busy entrepreneurs don't understand how it works, they're not that interested. It's just, oh yeah, just another thing. That's Mark Williams, Emeritus Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Oxford. Mark is a leading figure in the field of mindfulness, which is at the heart of Huffington's approach. More of that later. Strangely for a business venture, the Huffington Post was not founded to generate big profits. Its goal was political. After Democrat John Kerry lost narrowly to George W. Bush in the 2004 presidential election, Arianna Huffington, venture capitalist Ken Lehrer and the digital media expert Jonah Peretti decided to create a liberal version of the influential conservative online news machine, The Drudge Report. She already had her own website, Ariana Online, but she wanted to transform it into what she called elevated blogging. Soon, she had a collection of highbrow and high-profile contributors from Hollywood to academia that included Diane Keaton, Warren Beatty, Norman Mailer, David Mamet, Larry David and Walter Cronkite. Ever since I can remember, I've loved starting conversations. Just conversations about everything. And the longing for conversations propelled me to want to start the Huffington Post, where people with something interesting to say can have a platform in which to say it. People from anywhere, well-known people, people nobody had heard of, and use the power of online media, us, the power of the Internet, which we're just beginning to understand. 
The words of Arianna Huffington, spoken by Laurel Lefko. She got into writing online on the internet at the very early days of the internet. Leah McGrath Goodman is the author of Arianna Huffington, Media Visionary and Wellness Evangelist. During Clinton's sex scandals, Bill Clinton's sex scandals, she started a website called resignation.com, which was to more or less shame Bill Clinton into resigning, which was unsuccessful. Uh, but she started writing online more. And she continued to write online while she ran for office in California um, in 2003. She started Ariana Online and she continued to publish her own articles. She had raised money during her run for governor in California. So she, she used some of that money and she loved the interaction with her readers. You know, she would put out an article and they would write to her and she would write back. She loved the verbal jousting and she started to build up a platform and she started bringing in her friends, some of her celebrity friends. And it was the, the early, um, early idea for the Huffington Post was using a lot of her contacts to, to try to brainstorm something. She had a really beautiful mansion in Brentwood, California. You know, this was a very liberal leaning part of the state and she ended up you know, increasingly having these liberal friends, um, increasingly met Hollywood types and other famous folks on the West Coast. And yeah, she would hold, it was really in a way bringing some of these amazing parties online where everyone could be talking um, by posting. The Huffington Post was launched in May 2005. It was a hell of a different project to her first online platform called simplyresignation.com and which called for President Bill Clinton to leave office. That had become a rallying point for American conservatives. She had met amazing um, Republican operatives and media types and PRs while her husband was running for Congress. Um, they had even hired some of, um, some of the advisors for Reagan during his time as president. Uh, her husband ended up paying for, you know, really kind of like the best of the best. And so a lot of people who were involved in conservative uh, news and conservative culture were people she still was friendly with. And so as she launched her own media operation, she started bringing in the people who she knew were really good at it. Um, her priority wasn't I want the most liberal people. Her priority was, I want the most successful platform I can put together. And so she's going to bring along anyone who was good at that. Although strongly left-leaning, in its early days, the Huffington Post did employ Andrew Breitbart, who later started the right-wing Breitbart News. You know, he stayed for a short time. You know, he was, as we know, Breitbart, Andrew Breitbart, um, later founded the far-right a news site called Breitbart.com, which he called the Huffington Post of the right. So he obviously came to the idea of, well, this is going to be a liberal thing. And so I'm going to launch my own version of it, which, which is what he did. He, he has now passed away. He died in 2012. As her post became a huge success, Huffington, who had little experience in technology or even journalism, saw her own brand grow too. She was now a superstar travelling the globe, launching local Huffington Post offices. The trouble was, by 2010, it was making about $31 million in revenue, but its profits were less than a million. Its other issue was that, although it was reaching remarkable 26 million visitors per month, growth had stalled. And in the internet business, if your site isn't growing, it's going to shrink. And to grow, the Huffington Post needed more investment. 
But who's going to invest in a company that can't seem to turn a profit, despite big revenues? Ariana had to use her charm and contacts book to go out there, talk the talk and find that money tree. And she did. In 2011, she found Tim Armstrong, a founder of Google's advertising arm, who had by then become CEO of AOL. Yeah, it's so funny to think of AOL now because it's also kind of very dated now. But when she sold it, it was for $300 million in cash and stock. Um, and she had a 14% stake in the Huffington Post at that time. So she did really well. A lot of her investors did phenomenally well. And Ariana personally bagged about $21 million. Not bad, given that she had put none of her own money in at the start. Here's biographer Leah McGrath Goodman again. But she stayed on on after selling Huffington Post to AOL. They wanted her to lead it. And they also wanted her to lead all their other media properties. Um, that went very successfully and it globalized the Huffington Post. Uh, it was an operation that was very high cost. I think that AOL would have liked for it to have been a less expensive operation, but it, they achieved their goals and they outstripped the traffic of the New York Times. Uh, they really, they probably had more articles published a day and more daily unique viewers than almost any websites ever had. You know, they got to a point where they were publishing 2,000 articles a day, hundreds of millions of viewers. That's very hard to do by today's standards with all the websites now and all the news websites. You're listening to Global Disruptors on Disrupt Radio Australia. Ariana Huffington was born in Athens in 1950. Huffington is her married name, and more about her ex-husband Michael later. She was christened Ariadne Anastasinopoulos. Her father, Konstantinos, was a journalist and management consultant. Her mother, Ellie, did great things with the Greek resistance during the Second World War. In her book, On Becoming Fearless in Love, Work and Life, published in 2004, she wrote that when ambushed in the mountains by a group of German soldiers, her mother faced them down. They started to shoot, threatening to kill everyone if the group didn't surrender the Jews that the Germans suspected rightly they were hiding. My mother, who spoke fluent German, stood up and told them categorically to put down their guns that there were no Jews in their midst. And then she watched the German soldiers lower their guns and walk away. The words of Ariana Huffington, spoken by Laurel Lefko. Her father's dreams of becoming a newspaper proprietor finished in bankruptcy, a life lesson she often referred to in her Huffington Post days. She has also been very open about her father's infidelities. After her parents divorced when she was 11, Ariana claims her mother struggled financially. But she went to a private school had foreign holidays, and later told the Washington Post that, quote, I never lacked anything. Like her father, she also dreamed big. Despite the fact that she didn't speak English and had never been to England, when she saw a picture of Cambridge University in a magazine, she told her mum that's where she wanted to study. She was already a larger-than-life figure. She took the university by storm. Lord Chris Smith, a former Labour Party cabinet minister, was a contemporary of hers. She had this sense of, of glamour about her. There was obviously no shortage of money. 
there were lots of rumors going around about uh, how she uh, used to uh, drive a car, which was very unusual for students in those days, and park it on yellow lines and simply accumulate the parking fees, uh, which from time to time she would pay off. Those were the sort of stories that uh, arose at the time about Ariana. Uh, she was uh, undoubtedly a figure of considerable prominence in the university. Chris Smith might remember her as glamorous, but Ariana was not accepted straight away, and some laughed at her accent and her still shaky English. Others called her Starianna Comacropolis. She traded on the uh, glamorous figure rather than on the uh, assiduous political background. Huffington became president of the Cambridge Union, a debating society founded in 1815 that had never had a foreigner at its helm before and had only had two women presidents before her. I followed her as president about a year later and I was president in the uh, Michaelmas term of 1972. So uh, I came uh, fairly hard on her heels and one of the reasons I think why I got elected was that I was totally different from Ariana. There was no glamour, but there was serious uh, politics in what I was uh, trying to present. And I think people had tired somewhat of the glamour by then. While she was there, she became the subject of a BBC TV documentary, which followed her at the all-woman college Girton, as well as at the Union. When I first came up two years ago, the first thing that struck me is the long, endless corridors. Then they are really depressing. It seemed as though you would go on walking forever. Now that I have only two full terms to go before I leave Girton, I find them full of character. Another thing that my Greek upbringing had not prepared me for were the college regulations. For instance, did you know that you can't have more than four men in your room without asking for your tutor's permission? That was One Woman's Week, BBC Television, 1971. Cambridge and the Union were springboards for Ariana Stasinopoulos. Girton played a pioneering role in the development of education for women because it provided a safe space for, at that time, perhaps society was a bit more conservative, so for families to send their girls, their young women, to go and get an education that was on the edges of Cambridge, but not right there in the heart of the action. And it was this kind of enterprise that sparked copycat enterprises. Girton wasn't just about Cambridge, and it wasn't just about women in you know, the southeast of England. It actually started a trend and gave great respectability to the whole women's movement, not just in education, but in political and social life more generally. The current mistress of Girton College, Elizabeth Kendall. In the early 1970s, Ariana was seen as very much of the right politically, and her Cambridge boyfriends were as well. They included David Mellor, who went on to become a British cabinet minister under Conservative Prime Minister John Major, as political writer Julia Langdon remembers. I became friends with David Mellor, who was a cabinet minister in the Thatcher era, and he told me that he had... Um, 
been boyfriend girlfriend with Ariana when they were at Cambridge together. Indeed, um, he actually let on that he used to write her speeches. I don't know whether he would he would own up to that today, but he said he wrote her speeches for her when she was uh, president, um, and he he knew her well and spoke. Um, warmly of his memories of her. <laughs> How do I say this? <laughs> Veteran political reporter Julia Langdon also recalls a meeting with Ariana over dinner with another boyfriend who would go on to great things in the British Conservative Party. Somewhat to my horror, Ariana Stasinopoulos appeared at the dinner table. Peter Sobingummer had invited his brother, John, later well known as a government minister, to, to dinner with us. And he brought his girlfriend, Ariana Stasinopoulos, who, of course, I had heard of because she had been a fiery Greek president of the Cambridge Union and quite well known as such. But she also had a reputation as being something, something rather right-wing. And I was not at all right-wing then or now. It was also the peak of first wave women's lib, and as it was called then. And she was distinctly antipathetic to what was going on. And the one night, I dine out on the story of Ariana Stasinopoulos saying to me once, leaning over the table in this restaurant and saying, oh, Julia, why do you think I'm so right wing? After three years at a college known for championing female equality, it must have come as a disappointment for many when Ariana leapt into print with a book criticising Germaine Greer's revered feminist blockbuster, The Female Eunuch. Men and women differ in every cell of their bodies. The Female Woman was subtitled in some editions with, quotes, an argument against feminism. The truth is that there is no contradiction between femaleness and independence, between femaleness and self-realization, between femaleness and intelligence. Today's female woman integrates and fuses these qualities without strain, without inner conflict. The Female Woman by Arianna Huffington was published in 1973. In some ways, she was quite lucky because it was really seen as a, a rebuttal of the Germaine Greer book, which had been a bestseller, and it was a hot issue at the time. And uh, Ariana, again, coming from a conservative background, really wanted to argue a sort of a different version of feminism. Some of her arguments are now quite dated and also can look quite sexist, but she has maintained that her underlying thesis was that you can be successful in your career and be a successful mother and partner, um, and you can have it all, and you should not have to choose one over the other. The book did very well, and it also brought her a lot of new allies, again, conservative allies. One of them that I think people might recognize now, since a lot of this is dated at this point, um, Norman Mailer had written a book that was also a very conservative take on the women's liberation movement and very critical. And he, he'd gotten really hammered for it. And so they became unlikely allies um, later on. He was one of the key writers who, when she launched the Huffington Post, agreed to blog on the Huffington Post that kind of helped get her on the map. It was disappointing, to say the least, to meet a woman who was out of step with the culture of the times for women. She was never a big feminist figure of any kind. 
uh, she didn't uh, beat the uh, the drum for the place of women in society. She was uh, much more interested, I think, in uh, getting on herself and making a name and uh, subsequent career for herself. I think it's always important to remember that women have the absolute full rainbow of views in exactly the same way that any other uh, group. It doesn't surprise me that there are lots of different kinds of views of what women's liberation means or what it means to be an independent and professional woman and you can just understand it from so many different perspectives. You might have the, the Huffington angle or the Jermaine Greer angle. I, I don't think it really matters as long as there's a very healthy debate. I'm Rob Biddle and you're listening to Global Disruptors on Disrupt Radio Australia. Stay tuned as we uncover more about the life and career of Arianna Huffington. Radio. Hi, I'm Nick Brax, host of Soul Trader on Disrupt Radio. I've been interviewing people who have achieved huge things in life and uncovering how they keep it together and how they survive the struggle to success. You can listen to all of my podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or whichever podcast you prefer. Just search Nick Brax, Soul Trader. When you finish binging all of my shows, be sure to check out the rest of the Disrupt Podcast Library, The Business Lounge, The Next Shift, Global Disruptors, The Advisory Board, and Conscious Capital. Maybe you own a business or an entrepreneur or just simply want to improve yourself. Disrupt Podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in to Opportunity. Disrupt Radio.